It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Karen Walters. Welcome to the show, Karen. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. It's a pleasure to be here, Laban. Much, much, I'm glad to be here. Well, it's an absolute delight to have you on the show, and, and I thought I'd kick this off with something that might be of interest to you. I uh, punched Kerrod Walters into an anagram maker, and an anagram of Kerrod Walters is world beaters, would you believe? World beaters, eh? World beaters. Hmm. Interesting. Would you say that you're a world beater? No, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm, say that I'm, I'm sort of very lucky to, to have enjoyed to play a, playing a sport that I thoroughly enjoyed and, and would have played for nothing um, if, I, if I had to, so... Um, I think it's just all my brothers were just lucky that um, we had the ability to play a, a, a sport that people love to watch and enjoy, and and then uh, we got to to, um, to entertain them on a weekly basis and um, and get paid for it. So how good's that? Yeah, very good. And, and for our non-hardcore rugby league fans that are listening, what is the sport that you grew up and loved playing, Kieran? Uh Rugby league, you know, NRL, which is known as NRL. So yeah, grew up in, in Ipswich. Um, from a family of five boys, um, and uh, when we were five years old, we started playing rugby league down at our local footy ground, which is 100 metres down the road, and um, and just went through from under, from under seven through to you know through to um, first grade, and just loved every minute, and loved training, loved getting in the backyard and playing playing with my brothers, and, and um, yeah, it was just great great fun. The you've set a bunch of different records and been uh, nominated and awarded a bunch of different prizes, but there's one particular one that will be a hard one to knock off, and that's the fact that you are part of the first ever set of twins to play rugby league for Australia. Is that right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, so Kevin and I were the first twins to play initially start of origin, then for Australia, um, which we're uh, very proud of that fact. And then, uh, then the Morris twins, who obviously are current players now. Have, have achieved the same feat, obviously playing for New South Wales and playing for Australia. So, but we're still very proud to, to achieve that honour, and and I'm sure that uh, the Morris Twins are just as proud as well. Well, uh, look, they are, and I, and I think I'm curious to know, uh, with all your brothers, three of you made the international squad. What is it about growing up in a family of of brothers like that that makes things work in the way that they did? Well, I think we sort of motivate each other to, to try and achieve great things. And um, I think just when we encourage each other as well, no one was ever jealous of anyone for achieving great honours. Um, and that's where it was. So that's how mum and dad brought us up to, to treat each other with respect and to go out and, and to do your best and give your all and, um, and support each other. And your father, uh, he's, he's since passed away a while back. Yeah. Yep. How old was he? How old were you when he passed away? 
Uh, I would have been um, like uh, around the around just over probably forty three somewhere around there. Yeah, he, he passed away in two thousand two thousand and ten. Um, we had that had a stroke, um, and um, yeah, it was sort of come out of the blue, and he was only just only just turning seventy one, so he was was quite young by modern standards. Yeah, and so we we're very sad and well through dad's passing, but um, yeah, we had a lot of great memories with dad, and um, we still got those memories to cherish for the rest of our lives. Yeah. So, look, your dad's gone now, which is which is unfortunate, but he would have left hopefully behind a legacy of some really great values. What were some of those? Yeah, well, I think, like I said, you know, to achieve things and you got to work hard. Um, and I think the one thing he taught me was to treat everyone like you like you were treating yourself. And um, I, that's my thing. I've sort of gone through the rest of my life. I treat other people how I'd like to be treated myself, regardless of who they are and, and where they're from. So, um, and the other thing was just. Big thing, you. If you want to achieve things in life, you've got to work hard and um, and have a positive attitude. What does that look like, though, in terms of working hard? Because it's it's a really it's a great statement, but it's a it's a hard reference point, I think, for some people that don't have a role model. And a lot of the guests that that have been on the show and have spoken quite openly about growing up and as part of a broken home, for example, where you don't have mm. some of the role models that you've been blessed with growing up. What does that look like? I think you can work hard, but you also got to you got to work smart. That's one of the keys, I think, too. Is you know, there's no use you know going down the track of, of um, trying to, to do something and, and getting getting nothing out of it. You got to work smart, and um, I think um, that's probably the keys is, is identifying what you're going to need to do to get to where you've got to go, um, and just take those little little steps along the way, um, and um, just set you set set yourself goals and. I thought when I was young, I didn't really set goals. I just just loved, I loved going to school. I loved you know playing sport. You know, I loved being around my family and my friends. And um, and it just sort of our sort of careers evolved. We never sort of dreamed that we could sort of reach the heights that we could reach. Um, and we just it just sort of happened as we, as we went through our life. So, um, um but I, I think an example is that um, after my first year, I played my first NRL game. I, I went to, into the off season in '89, um, and I knew that if, if I was going to get to that, stay at that level, and, and and achieve great things or good things, I'd have to be doing things that others weren't doing. So I actually trained. I actually went out and did a training run Christmas Day and New Year's Day because I knew that the others wouldn't be doing that. So I had the, I had the, you know, a, a, you know, a head start on in that regard. So that's the sort of mentality I had to to get in that year in '89. I I played played state of origin and played for Australia. So I think it helped me to, you know, got me off in the right direction, just doing something that others weren't, that I knew they wouldn't be doing to give me that edge. Yeah, we had, we were lucky enough to have on Sir Steve Hansen, the former All Black coach, and he was talking yeah. about uh, Richie McCaw's work ethic and how he was very, very far from the most talented bloke in that squad, but he was, he worked the hardest and he just, it, it um, it's been really beneficial for me hearing these stories. Uh, particularly in the last four or five years, where you can actually you can actually work hard enough at something to become world class. You don't necessarily have to be born with the you know. I think I use that term loosely as well, like born with a genetic predisposition. Yeah. But it's just it's hard work that gets you to those heights. That's and exactly that's- right. Well, players like Richie McCaw, they're the players that that your teammates love to play with. And when I talk to young, young, up, up sort of budding rugby league players, I ask them, there's three types of players in, in our game. There's player A who has limited ability, 
but we'll go out there each week and give 100% and do whatever it takes to, to win. And there's player B who has enormous ability but takes the shortcuts and, you know, not prepared to do what it takes to win. And then there's player C who has enormous ability and does whatever it takes to win and doesn't take shortcuts. And they're your superstars. So which player do you want to be, you know? Player A, player B or player C. Do you talk much to the the up-and-coming uh, kids about, like if it's something they want to take to the top, that they really need to be super-duper passionate about playing the game? Yeah, you've got to be, you've got to be passionate about whatever, whatever you're doing in life. You've got to wake up each day and, and want to get stuck into it. Um, but one sort of, I think, an important message to young kids is, is always have a plan B because plan A doesn't always necessarily work out, in particular in having a professional career in sport because only a certain amount of... Um, like kids get, get the opportunity to play at that level and uh, unfortunately there's going to be lots of miss out. So always have a plan B and plan A might not always work out. So make sure you have a plan B and that's get to school and, and study hard and, and make sure you've got a plan, plan B. What was your plan B? Uh, my plan B, well, I actually, I was an electrician by trade. So I got a, I did my apprenticeship in the railways and um, the day I finished my apprenticeship was the day I, I left um, being an electrician and became a, Pretty much a full-on professional footballer. Yeah, I think I went on. I played State of Origin and went on a tour to New Zealand, and I never went back to it. I just, yeah, just focused on playing footy and, and doing that. Yeah. And you actually made your debut in my hometown of Christchurch down at QE2 Park there against the Kiwis. I did. Yeah, it was a it was a very memorable occasion actually to play. It's a, it's amazing. You sort of watch as, as you keep growing up and you see the players before you played that played for Australia and how wonderful players they were and imagine what that was like and when you're sitting there in the dressing room you're sitting there beside these you know Wally Lewis's and the Melvin Ingers and the you know the uh, the Gene Miles those type of players who were legends in my time you think I'm sitting here with these guys about to get going and play for my country this just can't be real and um, um actually Blocker Roach was, was, was one of my front rowers in Sam Bacco and um they certainly looked after me during that test series against New Zealand because it got a bit spiteful that series. So I was very lucky to have a couple of guys in my, in my corner looking after me. Have you got all your uh, original teeth, Kerry? I, I, well, I haven't. No, this this one here. I, I didn't. I never lost it during footy, but um, after I got a few obviously hits around the, around the face and around the, and around my mouth, and uh, I, it actually went that tooth. I had to get a root canal. It. it um, and then uh, one day I was I was actually eating a hamburger and I was chewing. I thought oh, there's something in my hamburger. Oh, there's something hard in my hamburger <laughs> with half of my tooth had snapped and snapped off. So I did a quick dash to my dentist to um, to get something put in their place just so I could get could get my implant done. Yeah, so I was pretty lucky. I had very few injuries when I throughout my career, so I'm very lucky. Still, still managed to keep my good looks as well. <laughs> well, there's no <laughs> denying that at all. And I, I'm curious to know: was there any particular? regime that you had back then that's proved to be something that a lot of the other players do to this day with regards to keeping fit and strong and nutrition, whatever it might be? Oh, I just think every time I, every training I did, I put my put my, my best in. I just thought that, you know, that if you don't take shortcuts, you know, when, when it comes to, to a situation in the game when you you need to, to dig deep and, and, and find some mental toughness, I just knew that I'd be ready for it. I remember doing a... Um, Actually, spent some time in Adelaide, down at Adelaide Rams during the Super League days, and um, we we're doing this particular training run, a training drill, and it had nothing to do with rugby league. It was going down this hill, it was you know the it was slippery gravel road, was sort of it was a bit bit sort of hairy, scary, and and a few of the guys were saying, "What are we doing this for?" I said, "You'll understand what we're doing it for when it gets to its game, a time of the game when 
you know, it's, it's the 75th minute we've got to defend our trial and to, to, to win the game. And that's that's when your true courage will come out and what you're prepared to do to do, to, to win the game. And you, you won't be putting the cue in the rack like you're doing today. That's what losers do. Winners just do what it takes to win. And, um, yeah, they just they didn't get it what, why we're doing it. The coach obviously knew why we're doing it, yeah. Bit of a side uh, topic, Kieran. Your mum, Sandra, she passed away in 2013. What were mm. some of the the amazing attributes that you got from your your dear old mum? Oh, mum was just she was just the most beautiful mother. Um, we couldn't do no wrong in her eyes, and mum would never have a bird, bad word to say about anyone. Mum saw the good in everyone. That's what she taught us: is to see the good in everyone. Um, that everyone has, even though they might seem. Um, have sort of some bad points about it, but you've got to look for the good in people, and your and your and, your, and, the, and the good will come out. And I'm saying that was one thing that Mum taught us here. Well, I heard, uh, I, I saw a quote from your brother at her eulogy. She she never said a bad word against anyone except Benny Elias during the state of origin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bill, good mate, Benny. Yeah, yeah, Stephen and my brother Stephen and I had many famous battle against Benny Elias, but Benny was. You know, he was a great competitor and, and um, never gave you an inch. And uh, I think she might have got under, under mum's skins, like she did, got under many Queenslanders' skins, old Benny. So, yeah, <laughs> that's that's the same as Wally Lewis getting under a lot of New South Wales people's skins. So it comes with um, with, how, with the, how they play the game and, and what they do to, to try and win, yeah. Well, it's a fantastic memory. And I, 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 I'm 40 now, Kieran, and I grew up in the era in New Zealand where the Winfield Cup uh, was probably the most – amazing thing on TV apart from maybe the All Blacks because the Super Rugby competition didn't exist at that point. Oh. And he had that, that uh, the Jimi Hendrix starting tune. You had yeah, like, yeah. And then yeah. they had the Jimmy Barnes and Tina Turner, Simply the Best. Yep. They were really fond memories, not only for me, but like certainly that my brothers and, and a lot of my friends at that time and it seems like the game has has changed significantly since then, particularly with regards to the Biffo. Do you miss seeing the the shenanigans that used to go on back well, then? I, now? I, I do, and I, I I can't. Yeah, it must be hard for the modern player to, to not you know to react to a to something that another player does because it was you know they must have enormous discipline there because. But I think it's 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 the best thing for our game because we. We want we don't we want kids to grow up and and, and that's how we wanted to play the game. I mean, it, it's, it was a different game back when I played, and obviously prior to us, prior to my career, it was much different as well. So, but I think that the product now is, is a better product in regards to that. You know, and, and being a spectacle for, for for both men and women. I think what the NRL did realise that um, that fifty percent of the population were women, so you had to come up with a product that was going to be appealing to, to both men and women. And I think the product that they Particularly in the '90s, it was a fantastic product, and um, this year with the real change that, um, that Peter Valenti has brought in with with um, quicking up the play of the ball, has really brought it back to those '90s when it was fast flying open rugby league, but without the biffo, but still ferocious defence and some of the impacts are unbelievable in the modern game. Which the collisions are just frightening. Yeah. Well, I, I tend to agree with you. I think, Kerry, with regards to the you know the, the example that we need to set the the youth of of tomorrow. But I just wonder with what's gone on in modern society with regards to the res- the resilience of kids or lack of, particularly growing mm. up in this this generation, what are your thoughts on what's needed to happen to improve that in the world? I think we need a bit more tough love. I mean, that's that's what um, 
my parents gave me they gave us tough love and, and obviously Wayne Bennett, my first coach, was all about tough love, you know, that you you've got to you've got to take the knocks with the you've got to learn from that. And um I think we don't there's not enough tough love. Even no one wants to come come second or third or last. Someone's got to come second, someone's gotta come last. I think coming in those positions make you want to strive harder to come first, you know. Um, it's about but life's like that, you know. You, you don't get things handed you on a platter. You got to work. You got to work to whatever you want to achieve. And um, no one's just going to go here. You go here's, here's a here's a fantastic life. There you go. So I think that's you know might be what's lacking at the moment. And I think if the best way to describe it could be when um, when we misbehaved as kids, we got sent to our rooms. We weren't we weren't we weren't allowed to go outside and play. But now if kids misbehave, you've got to send them outside to play. Because if you send them to their rooms, there's the computers, there's lap, you know, there's you know, Xboxes, you know, there's phones. So that's how that's how society's changed. That you, yeah. So we've got to get the kids outside, get them playing, rather than get get them get them stuck in their rooms and you know, getting on computers and and the iPads, etc. Well, I'll throw a hypothetical at you, Kieran. Let's pretend you are elected prime minister. Which, given your political background, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, <laughs> is not that necessarily hypothetical. What is the, the the first rule that you would bring, or the first the first law that you would introduce? Um, good question. Um, I just I think I'd just like to give everyone the opportunity to try and you know, obviously to, to get gain employment. We've got to obviously make. I know that there are people out there that don't wish to work, but there are a lot that do. Um, so we've got to put in um, put things in place to allow people, to, if they want to work, to work. Um, particularly in the current situation, it's very difficult with the, with COVID and what it's done to our employment and um, made it difficult for people to, to gain work. So so I think there's there's nothing more better than when, when someone gets a job, it gives them purpose. And I know a young kid that, um, that did, did a bit of work for me. Um, he's actually one of the kids of my, one of our staff in, in our clothing business and he just didn't want to work and he had no purpose in life and I try and encourage him and um, now he's got a, he's got a job, and he's he's just totally changed. He's, he feels he feels like he's making a contribution. He's, he feels work doesn't feel worthless anymore. He feels like he's he can, he can contribute to society, and that's by getting a job and making him feel like you know he's he's getting ahead and, and achieving things. And it's amazing what what a job can do for you, your self esteem, and and, and about um, and teaching your lessons as well. And that, that was a great example. I thought. Just by getting a, getting a job, he feels like he's making a contribution. And he's just unbelievable how his attitude's turned around. Yeah, fantastic. And, and just uh, dabbling back on the on the political side of things, you were involved with uh, Glenn Lazarus um, a couple of years ago in the last election. What yeah. what was that all about? Uh, so Lazarus was a senator in obviously in the, in the Australian federal parliament, and um, he initially got in under um, Clive Palmer's um, party, but um, Lazarus. Decided in his wisdom that he'd like to go uh, on his own and um, form his own party, um, the Glenn Lazarus team. So then, in the federal election in 2016, it was um, I Lazo uh, contact me and said that he he um, felt that he might have an opportunity to, to get more seats in his party in the in the Queensland Senate. Would would I like to, to come on board? I said, oh, it sounded like because I was looking for another for a challenge. I thought that'd be a challenge. You know. I'd like to try and make a contribution in that regard. And I thought, and I really thought Lazo was was actually had his heart in the right place. He was a fantastic player uh, as a rugby league player, but I think he was had he generally was in there for the right reasons. He was there trying to try and make a difference uh, to Queensland in regards to uh, um, getting changed to to have, make it a better state to live in. And um, 
So I got on board, and uh, but unfortunately, um, uh, we didn't get the obviously the votes were required to, to not only get Lazar but to get me in as well. So, but it was a great experience. So I learned, you know, I got out and spoke to people about what their problems were and how we could try and bring some change to pitch, particularly in, in the um, in the sort of the, the um, country country areas where they get do get quite forgotten sometimes. Also, the the city areas get plenty of attention, but the Lazar focused on the in the country areas where he felt that um, you know the people needed needed a real hand. That was what my focus was as well. Brilliant. And what what are some of the major areas of challenge that are that the country folk of Australia are facing at the moment that they want to address? Well, I think just jobs. You know, there's, there's just a lack of jobs in a lot of the the, you know, the outback towns. There, the, the towns are dying because I mean, particularly look, look at the mining industry. Most of the, a lot of the workers in the mining industry are fly in, fly out, so they just fly in. Live on the camp and fly home. They don't invest a lot of money in the town. They don't improve the infrastructure. Um, so that's probably what's happened to a lot of our country towns is that they're just dying because no one, no one wants to live there. Um, so they just need a, you know, a, a big you know, in, um, injection of um, you know, funds to help get some get some jobs and get some get some um, you know, industry happening back in there because because farming's you know, obviously struggling at the moment as well. Did it trigger any interest in maybe pursuing the political arena further for you? No, I just I just realised that um, I, you know I had my crack at it and, and it wasn't wasn't it probably wasn't for me neither. So, but I, I enjoy the the opportunity to see to learn how you know, that side of politics works, and I, I learned a lot of things. And but yeah, I scratched the itch, I ticked the box, so I'll move on. What are some of the other uh, areas or employment? Routes that you've gone down on, gone down into that we that we're not aware of. Yeah, well, so initially when I, um, I I did my apprenticeship as an electrician and um, got did my four year apprenticeship and finished that. Uh, then I got obviously into, into rugby league and then um, after rugby league I got into sales. I did real estate sales for about eight years, and then I um, I joined up with a with a mate of mine who I played rugby league with a guy called Mark Hone. Who has a massive? Uh, he had a massive commercial cleaning business statewide in Queensland. So I came on board as his um, as his business development manager to, to grow his Sunshine Coast region, and and, and um, did that for for about eighteen months. And um, and then I thought, oh, I might this I might do something for myself here. So we went back and, and um, we opened up our own real estate business. Did that for about twelve months, and and then um, on the other on the side, I, we we, um, we grew. Started growing a commercial cleaning business as well, and also we at the same time we started a ladies' fashion boutique um, chain. We did have had our first shop in Calandra in 2016, opened our second shop at Kawana in 2017, and our third shop in Cotton Tree on 2018. So, and um, it's it's been great. My wife's done a fantastic job um, uh, with um, with growing the business, and yeah, she's got a really good name, good name and reputation here on the Sunshine Coast. And actually now throughout Australia, because we we, we actually went online uh, last year, and, um, and during COVID was actually what probably saved our business was the fact that we're, we're an online business that we could actually operate during COVID, which is which saved us. Yeah, brilliant. And your your beautiful wife Desley, is it? yes, Desley. And how long have you guys been together for? Uh, twelve years now. Yeah, I have to think about that. Yeah, to that twelve years. Oh, yeah, to twelve years. Time <laughs> flies when you're having fun, doesn't it? So yeah, we sort of met uh, in two thousand and eight, um, and yeah, we've been sort of together ever since. And yeah, she's a fantastic lady, and um, yeah, taught me many taught me many lessons in life as well. She's a, a 
probably the most positive person I've ever met. You know, every day she gets up and she just loves life and, and she inspires you to, to want to get on board and get on the bus and yeah, let's go, yeah. Now, Desley was around when you had a heart attack when you were in your mid-40s. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what went on down there. Yeah, it was, well, that, that, that came out of the blue and um, the story was, well, the story is, um, it was 2013 and um, I'm actually watching Friday Night Footy, as you do, and the, I think the Cowboys were playing South Sydney and the Cowboys were getting a few rough calls from the referees. So I got on the phone and rang my brother Kevin and said, what about these poor Cowboys? They're getting a raw deal. He said, oh, settle down, Kerrod. He calls me five. Settle down, Kerrod. It's only a game of footy. It's okay. I said, yeah, you're right. It's only a game of footy. So I'm just, yeah. So the next morning, about three o'clock in the morning, I woke up with a, with a pain in my, my left shoulder. I just thought I must have slept funny in my shoulder and I got up to go to the toilet and um, I started feeling dizzy. I started sweating. I felt like I was just going to faint. And I said to Desley, I don't know what's wrong. Did I just feel terrible? I, I don't know what it is. And she said, well, what do you know? I said, I, th- I don't know. She said, well, I think we better take you to the hospital. I said, yeah, you probably should go. And we just jumped in the car and went. And we probably, in hindsight, probably should have called the, the ambulance, but um, we were only five minutes from the hospital. So we, we jumped in the car and probably, and during that five-minute drive, I just started getting feeling worse and worse. And I just remember sort of getting out of the car and sort of staring into the um, to the emergency department in Clanville Hospital and, and um, sort of telling what my symptoms and then within a minute they had me on the bed and they'd given me a tablet which they put under my tongue and, and obviously um, within five, ten, I felt fine. And I said, oh, look, I feel pretty good now. Am I able to go home? They said, Mr. Walters, you're going nowhere. I said, why? They said, Mr. Walters, you've had a heart attack. I said, you're kidding me. A heart attack? I couldn't believe it because I was still really fit, you know, and I was, didn't smoke. I was, wasn't overweight. So I had no sort of you know, symptoms that, that would sort of point you in that direction. So um, I went to, to the... Um, Nambour ICU, and then uh, they, they took me down to Budrum Private, and I had a had a angiogram, and they put, obviously put the camera, and then they found that I had a blockage in one of my main arteries, and so they put <laughs> with my dog. Sorry, sorry, Henry. <laughs> and and uh, um, so they put put the stand in, and, and I was fine. But um, yeah, I, all the all my fr- all my footy friends and my family were just shocked that you know because I was always one of the fittest guys around the team that I had actually had, had a heart attack and. Of course, I got all the phone, all the texts. You know, we didn't realize you had a, you had no ticker. We didn't realize you had a ticker and all this sort of stuff. And, and then the, the funny thing is, when when Desi rang Kevy to tell him what had happened, the first thing Kevy said was, "He took he took that Cowboys loss bad, didn't he?" <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, it was just you know, so I, it was, I was very lucky actually because I sort of understood how many people have heart attacks and, and how many people survive heart, you know, heart attacks and. I think it's about forty six percent of people that actually have a heart attack survive. I was very lucky. Even he's even he's second. getting excited about the, the heart yeah, attack story. Yeah. Yeah, so then, so, so you you, no, continue, continue. Yeah, so um it's um I realised that um so I sort of took it upon myself to try and tell my story to his with the Heart Foundation to because they, they said that um once again there's a stream Things that same scenarios from from heart attack, also the scenario that I had where you know you have it and you you get to the hospital and everything's okay. Um, then the scenario B where you ignore the symptoms and and by the time you you try and act on it, it's too late and you and you you're gone. And the other one is if you're remote or you just can't get to your hospital in time and you you know that's your, that's your third scenario. So um, 
but the, but the one that really surprised, worried me was the fact that most men and women too, but most men just ignore it and and don't don't um, think they're having a heart attack, and then it's too late. So I got out, I got out there and made it, took it upon myself to try and tell my story, to try and tell men that it's you know the worst the worst thing you can do is, is not, not go to the hospital, go to a doctor, just get, get get checked out and make sure that everything's fine, and then. What are you done? Yeah, you could it could save your own life. So yeah. Well, I mean, thank goodness, and good on you for for having the courage to talk about. It. And it's this is something I want to explore a little bit, Kerry, because you know uh, we're not too far apart in age uh, when you really boil it down. And we we grew up in an era where it was really sort of frowned upon to talk about feelings, and particularly like a lot of mental health stuff and and you know physical mm. health and. I don't know about you, but like there's a lot of people that I've known of, um, thankfully not too many close friends that have been directly affected by, you know, a lot of depression and that type of thing. Um, although now I think about it, there has actually been quite a few, but no one that's actually committed suicide. How important is it that you actually do something about how you're feeling these days? Yeah, I just think now more than ever, you've got to, you know, if you're feeling if you if you feel just not right or you know if you're not yourself just get get just get some help talk to someone talk to your mates you because know, I think that 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 whole stigma is, is gone you know that if you, that it's um it's weak to, to express your feelings and you know someone know you you're feeling down and you're weak you know I just think I think a strong person a strong person will, will find will seek help you know a weak person won't so a strong person find the help that you need. Because not only will you be saving yourself, but you've got to think of your family and friends and, and what they have to go through as well. Um, when, when, if, if you're gone, so um, find the courage to, to to talk to someone and get some help. Because it's not weak; it's strong. Have you had any feedback from anyone that you've that you've shared your story of your heart attack with? That's gone and gone, gone and got checked and turned out there was something wrong with them. And, and yeah, thanks to a, you, a couple of people, yeah. But I haven't sort of had a lot of. Yeah, so you don't hear you too much, but yeah, a few people have yeah that have thought you know when they heard about me, they they got checked out just to make sure because because um yeah they thought if it could happen to him, it could happen to me. So and it's not a heart disease; it isn't an old person disease. You know, it's um like oh, I think it was forty five or forty six times. So that's that's pretty young. You think it's a, a, a disease affects older people, but I remember when I was actually in hospital, there was a twenty five year old girl who was there, and the and the doctor, well, my doctor said. How that? How can a twenty-five-year-old girl have done enough damage to her 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 heart to have heart disease? So you know, it's you just got to go in and and it doesn't, you know, it just get checked out for sure. Yeah. Well, there's there's quite a lot of uh, not stigma, but there's a lot of association with the leagues being quite a raucous bunch and partying pretty hard. Uh, is there's always a leaguey in the news in some way, shape, or form. Yeah for good or for not so good what about you and your discipline with regards to drinking and partying particularly when you were playing what was that like yeah I mean obviously you know I was prepared well I didn't I didn't sort of I didn't have any you know during during a game before a game or during the week I just felt you know how we how we sort of operated in our day was that um, if we played well we we enjoyed the win We we had a good time after the game and then, um, then come Monday, we're, we're back, we're back focused again. So, and I, that was how we did it. Obviously, we, we enjoyed. I, th- I think that um, you've got to enjoy your wins because you you try and hard, you work hard for your victories. I think as a team, you've got to go and enjoy those successes. Um, 
that, that's how the game has probably changed because of the um, the, the drinking culture and the fact that you know that the game, you know, it's um, they get paid a lot of money now with 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 the, with the big wages comes big responsibility. Um, because to, to get those big wages, you need lots of sponsorship, lots, lots of game revenue, and um, that's how it is these days. You can't be tarnishing the brand. And um, if that was a if I was in the modern game, that's how it would be as well. You you got to take the responsibility, or your role model, and also you got responsibility to to not tarnish the brand. Yeah, and I it's, it sort of goes back to that le- that role model, that leading by example. You know, the, the biffo that's come out of the game, and you know, getting through the week without making the headlines for doing something that. You know, it might have been blown yeah. out of proportion or whatever. But, but I think, like, I think on the whole, I think all, all sporting codes, AFL, NRL, you know, soccer, um, you know, or, or even in unions, well, that the, the not majority of, of guys do, do a really good job. You know, they, you know, they're role models. They, you know, they 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 treat the treat their teammates and their people with respect and don't sort of get get out of line. You think about it, like even the NRL, there's they say there's say 500, 500 professional players in, in the NRL, you know, so that's a small percentage that, that do the wrong thing. It's, it's not, it's not, it's, I think in, in general, they do, they do a really good job. You know, there are guys that have done the wrong thing, but you look across society, you know, that I think that the NRL boys do a pretty good job and, and all the other sporting coaches as well, because they're very heavily scrutinised. Let's be yeah. honest. So yeah, I think they do a great job. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'd agree with you, Kieran. And I think uh, I'm not a, I played my my very first code was rugby league, playing for the Addington Magpies, playing when I was centre, and um, that's my my Surrey. <laughs> tell me, tell me what's the, hey, you just watch yourself. Um, yeah, uh, growing up in Christchurch, playing for the Addington Magpies, and then I switched over to Union because I uh, I never got the ball. <laughs> I was well, never I, the I was, ball and, and, I, and I was and I was playing at centre. And uh, but I always used to win those McDonald's uh, the cheeseburger vouchers for the most yeah. amount of tackles, and it, and yeah. it really set me up for when I switched over to Union because I was a fearless yeah. tackler at that point. Yeah. Um, mm. But the the code that I've sort of invested my time in has been cricket for the last yeah. forever, and I'm still involved mm. at a club down here, Melbourne University, and yeah. and the thing that I've noticed about particularly a lot of the elite players, and I've been fortunate enough to have. We had Ryan Harris on the show, Chris Rogers, mm. Justin Langer came on recently as well. And it's all a very similar story, the discipline, the the, the work ethic. Uh, it's not conducive to being, uh, you know, off your head, partying all the time. Like it's not sustainable. Is it? No. Would you agree with that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you know, they're professional athletes and you've got to prepare to, to play well. And, you know, that means, you know, get preparing to the best you can if, you come into training hungover or not, not yourself, but, you know, straight away you're setting yourself up for failure, you know. So I just think, you know, particularly the, in the modern game, you're looking for that edge, you know, over that, like I did when I was training Christmas Day and, and New Year's Day, you've got to have that edge and um, you've got to prepare to, as, as best you can because over that in, over that 80-minute sort of period during a game, you've got to make sure that um, you make the most of those 80 minutes and you're on your, you're on your game. And, um, you know, I think that's the way you've got to be. But actually... It just reminded me when you said Christchurch and my first trip to New Zealand in '89, and um, I, got, I just didn't realise how big the All Blacks were in New Zealand, and they were just but it was everyone every second every every person had an All Black jersey on. There was All Black signs everywhere, and but mate, he's got his All Blacks a big big time over here because rugby league was still still sort of finding its way, you know. Um, and then probably probably '94 '95 when the, when the Warriors came in, I think rugby league sort of went to another level in New Zealand, but. Um, 
in those there that when my first trip, I just could not believe the aura and the, and the respect and, and the high regard that the All Blacks were held in over New Zealand. They were oh gods, and it was unbelievable. Here's a trick one for you. Who do you prefer, Ray Warren or Graham Hughes? Commentating. Oh, <laughs> they, they, I mean they're both good comment. Obviously, Ray um, Ray Hadley or Hadley Graham. They're both good commentators, but um, yeah, I mean. You've you got to go with um, – I've lost my train of thought there. <laughs> got to go with Ray Warren, man. Yeah. <laughs> Rabbits like he's Richard been, his longevity. His, long, his longevity is, you know, without, you know he's, he's without peers. So he's been commentating there for, is it 40 years now at that elite level? So Something you know, ridiculous, he, he, yeah. Yeah, you know, he just – he loves the game and he, he sort of brings a, a different dimension to the game. And, you know, he's been at, at his at – his, in, in the peak, he's peaked for a long period of time. So, yeah. He's, he's, he's the man, I think. He's a Richie Benno of uh, NRL, I think. Richie Benno of NRL, that's him, yeah. <laughs> Ray Rabbits Warren. <laughs> and Actually, remember, remember him calling my first Origin game. He was calling me. He, was, he said, "This little, this little hooker from Ipswich, Carrot Wallers. He goes all right, doesn't he? Look at him go." <laughs> I've always been a fan of him after that. <laughs> I sort of ran. I said, "Mate, my first Origin, you gave me a rap, so I've always been a fan of you, mate." <laughs> well, speaking of fans, Kieran, uh, and when I was 14 in uh, New Zealand at Christchurch Boys High, I was a Canberra Raiders fan, a massive uh-huh. fan, and uh, and I was a huge Brett Mullins fan. And I and I said yep. to Mum, who was a hairdresser, I said, uh, "Can you can you shave Brett Mullins's name in my hair in my head?" <laughs> <laughs> she. She fucking ran out of room and it said Brett Mull. And I turned up to school and he was like, what the fuck's Brett Mull? Uh, he was, yeah, he was a fantastic player, Brett Mullins. Yeah, great player. Fantastic. One, one particular game on a Friday night down in Canberra at Bruce Stadium was freezing cold and he just he just did a job on us. He was unbelievable and, um, yeah, he was a great player, fantastic player. Was that the game that he scored? Uh, an end-to-end try with a couple of kick and a chase. I think it was, yeah, yeah. You bring back bad memories, there, but yeah, I think it was. Yeah, <laughs> there's nothing. There was no worse game than Canberra at Canberra on a Friday night at Bruce Stadium. It was always freezing cold. It was a full house, and uh, it was just yeah. I don't think we ever, we ever won on a Friday night down there in Canberra. They were, and they had such a fantastic team too. So, but the amazing, you know, the amazing thing was um, that. Because the Broncos and the Raiders dominated the, the, the 90s and um, and never ever played in the grand final, you know, probably much to m- mum and dad's relief because they would hate to watch us in the grand final. But um, yeah, we never ever played, we played them in a lot of semi finals, but, but um, no grand finals. But, um, yeah, it's amazing because from from 80, was it from 80, 87 to 2000, my mum and dad went to 14 grand finals in Sydney to watch either the Broncos or, or, the, or the Raiders. So, Wow. Not a bad effort, eh? Really. Well, you managed to get a couple under your belt, a couple of grand finals. Yeah, yeah it was yeah, 92, not well, 92 was our first one. And and um, you know, we were sort of building from, from day one in, in 88. We had a fantastic footy team, but we had to learn how to win in that at that at that level of footy. Um and we learned, you know, in 1992, we we went all the way and and won the grand final quite comfortably. And um it didn't really sort of hit home until we got back to Brisbane, how much it meant to our supporters and how much support we had. We were going back to getting back to the airport and there were thousands of people at the airport. We got in the bus and we were back to King George Square in the city and once again thousands of people there to, to welcome us back and, and, and support us and then got back to the Leeds Club and uh, on the field was just full field. We were on the back of a, of a, of a, 
on a bar by truck with a and on the, on and um, we're all standing there and and um uh, the first one was um was Alf Alf decided to crowd surf he jumped in the crowd and over he went and then like I think Kevy was next and I think Wayne Bennett might have went as well then and then the fourth person was was big big Senator Glenn Lazarus and Lazos dived off off the truck and then it was like the party with the Red Sea. <laughs> they couldn't Lazarus went boom to the ground. They <laughs> said, "We're not taking. We can't support you." They said, "Oh, it was so funny." Uh, Lazarus hit the ground. It was like the party with the Red Sea. But then when Alf got across to the side of the field and they sort of got him across on top, someone had taken his shoes. He had no shoes. <laughs> so obviously, obviously going into the leash club. So he, he ended up wearing his football boots into the leash club that night because so, he had to wear shoes because of, you know, for safety regulations. So a uh, funny night. And then it actually had to help him because it actually gave him a couple of inches so he could actually see above the bar in order to drink. <laughs> so he was very lucky. <laughs> Because there wouldn't be many people with, uh, I'm, I don't know what size Alfie Langer's shoes were, but they, I'm guessing they weren't very big. Yeah. And I'm doubt Glenn Lazarus had a spare, spare pair of size sixteen or whatever he was. No, it would have been a kid. That, it would have been a kid that confiscated because they, they wouldn't fit anyone else. <laughs> how, yeah. how, how big was Glenn, Glenn Lazarus at his peak? Do you think? So, like any, any with us, it was about 100, 120 kilos. Yeah. 120 kilos, and, and like there was no more mobile person than him. He was phenomenal. That's what made him such a great player because he was so big, but he was so so mobile. Get across the field and you know pull off cover saving tackles, and yeah, he was a phenomenal player. I say, yeah, it, like Stephen and I were blessed to have played with him because he made our job so much easier because of the, the yards he got and to get up. He played the ball with three blokes hanging off him. We just off we go, you know. So. Yeah, and I know Blocker Roach has got a high opinion of him. Yeah, he's the best I've seen. Yeah, Lazo. Who have you? Uh, who are your top three favourite other rugby league players of all time? Well, obviously, first was was the King. I was, I, we, we everyone loved when we grew up. We just we loved the King. We were at the first um, State of Origin game in nineteen eighty uh, at, at uh, Lane Park, as it was known back then. Because um, my brother, my older brother Brett. And Elf's older brother Kevin were playing in the Queensland under eighteen curtain raiser, so we were there. We we jumped in the in the Holden from Ipswich and made our way down. And because back then there was no ticket tech, so we we were lined up with thousands of people, and um, we thought, Dad, we're not going to get in here, Dad. So Dad said, I've got Dad had a plan B. See, he had plan plan B was he had the pair of pliers. We snuck around the back and we cut a hole in the in the fence in Hale Street and through we went, along with another <laughs> other five thousand people behind too. <laughs> So the crowd that was actually five thousand short because there were five thousand went through the fence with us, <laughs> and uh, yeah, never forget it. When Arthur Beetson led the Queensland team on, and yeah, and and I just thought I thought to myself, I want to play Origin. That's what I want to do. And was it um, nine years later I got the opportunity to play? And Arthur Beetson was my coach, and Wally was was my captain. So um, just unbelievable, yeah. So Wally was he, he's my all-time favourite, yeah. Number two. Um, number two, um, let me think. Well, I was also a big, um, I used to love Peter Sterling and, and, and Brett Kenny. Just thought they were wonderful players. And um, of that, Peter Sterling and Brett, and Brett Kenny. Um, just from, look, probably those three, yeah, because I, I don't really have any, like I have a lot of favourites, but they'd be my three that I used to love watching play, yeah. Mm. And your favourite ever? Rugby league memory. Um, I'd have to say that that probably the the, the ninety two grand final. I mean, 
like playing for Queensland and playing for Australia is is like it's a personal thing. But you know, to win a premiership is that's that's what you train all year for to win and and to celebrate it with with your teammates and to win that that um, in '92 was just you know phenomenal. Um, to think you know the how hard we we worked to get there and, and we finally done it. You know, um, yeah, that and then probably like I said, sitting in the dressing room. Um, before the first origin in, in 1989 at, at Lane Park, as it was named then, um, and sitting there and beside these legends of, of State of Origin football and having Arthur Beetson come over and say, here you go, son, here's your, here's your first State of Origin jersey. We're a proud son. We believe in you. And I just thought, how good is this? And then when you run out on the, on the Lane Park and then the, the, the Lane Park crowd just erupts and I'm getting tingles on my neck now thinking about it. I'm it's getting tingles too. <laughs> uh, it's just a phenomenal experience. And I used to say to my son, I say, Brooke, I said, there's only one thing better than watching Sardarois at Lane Park and that's playing it, mate. And um, I hope you get the opportunity one day, but obviously you never got the opportunity, so you won't get the opportunity. So, but yeah, it's just phenomenal, yeah. That uh, that feeling that you're talking about, Kieran, is that – is it just amplified by a factor that you can't even really quantify compared to playing, say, club club league or a club sport? In a final? I think so. Obviously, the grand final, you know, those big games, semifinals and that and grand finals, you know, they sort of, they're up there, but that uh, Suncorp, Lane Park uh, atmosphere, it's just unbelievable. I remember a couple of years ago, some friends of ours who, who from, from Tasmania, I said, you've got to come and watch a State of Origin game. I said, you will not experience anything like it. So they went and they were, they were blown away by the atmosphere. Um, and obviously, Queensland won the game and they just said, this is a, like the, that's what makes State of Origin, particularly in Queensland, is, is, the, is, is the supporters in the crowd. And I think that what we've done as, as a Queensland team is we've taken on board that responsibility that we're not, to, to, to play for Queensland isn't, isn't your right. You know, it's, it's a privilege and, and the privilege makes you represent your state and those people that come there since 1980 to support Queensland, it's your, it's your obligation to go at them and play for them and play well. And what, that's what we had that great period uh, that under, under, under Mel where we won all those series in a row. And then I think that um, that they understood that, that was their, it was their turn to, we passed the baton onto them. And it was their responsibility to, to do to do Queensland proud and to play for their state because the state that they just love loved their footy. Yeah. What's your worst injury playing the game, Kieran? My worst was a dislocated wrist, which was a, was a pretty uncommon injury. I remember I got it playing down at Newcastle against at Marathon Stadium against the Knights, and I must have, I think I hit someone's head with me with my wrist. And um, <laughs> I thought this, this doesn't look good. I looked at it and it didn't look right, so I, I went off and yeah, it was it was um it was dislocated. So I had to go to the hospital. I got the got the green the green whistle, which which helped me. And they I remember I went to the hospital, and the person who was the doctor was on. It was on that night. He couldn't get it back in, and then so they had to call the specialist, and he, he came and went straight in. Um, so, but they, yeah, it was pretty unusual because normally when you dislocate your wrist, you, you break your wrist. But I didn't break it. I just dislocated my wrist. So, um, yeah, um, and then that was it. That was my worst injury. So very lucky. Mm. Very Never lucky. Did any knees? Or, no. Um, so. Um, yeah, yeah, that sort of brings me to you think about Cameron Smith. That you know, that obviously you think he can play all that footy and not have a have, have sustained a major injury. I know he's out injured at the moment with the source with a busted shoulder, but that's probably been his worst injury was at the moment. He's four, was he thirty seven or seventy eight years of age? Yeah, played five hundred something games of, at NRL and started rising 
test match footy, and doesn't miss a game. Phenomenal. But I think you can you can just be blessed with 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 a good you know um, body physique. You know that some some guys and um, just they just injury prone. Some guys are. Um, yeah. So. Well, there was. I think there was a report that came out today that revealed that he was made entirely of rubber, cured. So yeah, that would yeah. explain that would explain a lot, actually. Well, he's he's got. The, they say he's got the body of an accountant, but geez, I tell you, if there's, if there's a few accounts playing in a row, they wouldn't be lasting too long. But yeah, he's just. I think he's <laughs> smart too. He plays the game smart. You know, doesn't get him into situations where he's going to get hurt. But but playing in this position, you can't you can't hide. You know, he makes. 40, 50 tackles a game, you know, and you're up against some 120 kilo monsters. So, yeah, he's just a phenomenal player and a, and a phenomenal athlete. Yeah. Seems like a, I mean, I haven't had a chance to speak to him yet, but he seems like a phenomenal individual as well. Him and Billy Slater just seem like they're, they're really great at practicing a lot of gratitude and um, just very, very humble individuals. Is that your feel? They're, they're, they're humble. I mean, they had all that success at Origin and, and they, like us, were, were, they were in awe of the blokes that went before them, and they and they were just they would meet you know the players before them, and they'd be they'd be in awe of them, you know. So, and now they're you know, they're phenomenal players, and, and you know, great in history as, as, as our greatest players, and but their their greatest their greatest um is their is their like I said their humbleness and their and their um yeah that's and they and that, that comes across to the other players as well. That's why Melbourne have been so successful because those four blokes you know Smith um Smith well, Smith Slater and, and Cronk. It's the fact that they were so good, but they were so humble and so in great leaders, and, and, and they would players would follow them, you know. And they would be the first at training and the last last elite training. They set great examples, you know. That um, get where we we had to work hard. Well, Cooper Conk had to work harder than anyone, you know. So did Cameron Smith, and so did Billy Slater. That's why they were great players. What would uh, how are you now, Kieran? Um, fifty-two. Fifty-two. What would a what would a fifty-two-year-old Kieran? Tell a fifteen-year-old, Kieran Walters, um, just go out there and, and, and enjoy life. Um, opportunities are going to come your way. You're going to take some. You're going to you're going to miss some, but just stay on the path. You know that um, if you if you believe in yourself, and um, you'll you'll get success along the way. And was there any ever period in your life where times were tougher than what they have been? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think because I think that um, with my uh, with my heart attack, they because I had no no symptoms, they, they thought mine might have been because of stress. And during that um, that period, my mum was sort of got dying with cancer, and I was taking that pretty hard. And I I um, was going through through a messy um, marriage, divorce, and um, and 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 doing it tough financially too. So that was probably what caused my my heart attack and. I've sort of moved moved forward and and um, yeah, fine now. So yeah, but that that was probably caused mine. That was that was a pretty difficult period in my life. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty brutal. They talk about stress being one of the the it's a huge killer and how it can it changes the the molecular sort of structure of cells and how important yeah. it is to try and minimise. And they think that um, you know practicing the art of gratitude and a lot of the meditation mm. type stuff is really really beneficial. Um, certainly. Uh, in my own experience, Kieran, I've, I've developed yeah. into a bit of a distance runner, and yeah. um, I even had a crack at the Black or One Hundred um, back in 2018. Um, I don't know if you know that run; it's the, one of the ultra runs, the 100k run um, down in the in the middle of the rainforest there, just in Sunshine yeah. Coast. 
And um, that was sort of my meditation. But I've I've tried to incorporate a first thing in the day, just being present with myself. And it really helps, particularly with what's going on right now. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, like in addition to that, is there any other advice that you'd give anyone out there that's really doing it tough at the moment? Just just, just get, get help, mate. Just, just talk to people, you know, get on the phone, just, you know, just make the call and get some, get some help, get some support. Um, because there's, there's nothing worse than sort of keeping keeping in and, and um, trying to deal deal with problems just by yourself. You know, I just think you um, actually probably similar that similar on a simple length that I when I talk to young kids I say that they never be afraid to to ask questions because right? some kids won't ask questions because they, people think they're stupid. Because if you ask questions, you get answers. Answers give you information. Information gives you knowledge, and knowledge is powerful. So don't ever be afraid to ask questions, and that's the same with don't, don't ever be afraid to, to, to get help. It's not worth getting help. It's um, it's a sign of strength and a sign of smartness, yeah. Oh, I love that, Kieran. It's really – that's brilliant. And, and uh, mm. there's a lot of people out there at the moment that I think will be um, will be grateful for that for that really sage advice. And, and before we wrap things up, was there anything that you wanted to finish on? Um. Yeah, well, probably, yeah, I'll tell, I'll tell this story. I love this story. It's about my brother, Stephen, so I'll tell it. So, so back in, in the, like, the late 80s when Stephen went to, went down to the Canberra Raiders from, from Ipswich, um, his first job, he was the actual groundsman at, um, at Seaford Oval that they used to pay back then. And um, this one particular weekend, Stephen wasn't playing. He was out injured. And so he, it, was a, it was a Friday afternoon. He, he mowed the... He'd made the um, Seaford Oval, had a look at Magnificent. The lines were straight for once. And he thought, I've, I've done a fantastic job. I'm going to go back to the to the lease club and have a few beers. So away he goes. And about five five hours later, he decides to drive home, which he shouldn't do. So he gets in his ute and off he goes. He gets about five minutes down the road and he notices this police breath-testing unit up the road. He's all in trouble here. He pulls over his ute and gets his lawnmower at the back of the truck and starts mowing this bloke's front yard. Anyway, the bloke who owned the owned the house was coming. What's going on here, mate? He said, "Oh, look, mate, see Wallace from the Canberra Raiders. I've had a few beers. The police are down the road. I'll just mow your front yard until they go, and I'll, I'll be on my way." Oh, is that right, Steve? Out comes the wallet. See if I'm the local police sergeant. When you finish the front, you can do the back as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's brilliant! It's oh, brilliant. Well, Kerrit, it's been an absolute delight. Uh, Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. Ladies and gentlemen, Garrett Walters. Thanks, Laban. My pleasure, mate. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training well i will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available and not only just bring them on but to develop relationships with them that build into know like and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire you'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience go to podcastingheroes.com it's p-o-d-c-a-s-t-i-n-g H-E-R-O-E-S dot com.